Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I am Rabbi Danny Nevins, and we will be studying Tractate Eruvin together for the coming week. Tractate Eruvin has an endearing quality of blending technical and somewhat baffling discussions of the construction of physical boundaries to extend permitted activities on Shabbat, together with some splendid agadot or rabbinic legends. Just yesterday on Eruvin 13b, we learned the famous story of the three-year debate between the students of Hillel and Shammai that concluded with a divine voice declaring that both opinions are the words of the living God, but the law follows Beit Hillel. After this agotic section, 13b resumes the technical discussion of Eruvin with a Mishnah that specifies the qualities of a Korah, or a transom that covers the Tzurat HaPetach, or entryway to the Mavoi. This is a little bit technical, so picture the alleyway as having a um, an entrance, or Tzurat HaPetach, which has the crosspiece, the Korah, and the two Lechis, the two side beams that go down to the ground. According to the Tanakama, the anonymous and generally authoritative first opinion, this beam must be wide enough and strong enough to hold up a brick. Rabbi Yehuda softens these requirements, allowing for a crossbeam which merely appears capable of holding up a brick, even if it is not in fact strong enough or straight enough or flat enough to accomplish the task, since from below the korah or transom will look substantial. Ultimately, the eruv is a psychological structure designed to accomplish heker, or recognition that an open space has been enclosed for Shabbat. The Gemara on 14a accepts variously compromised korot, or transoms, as long as their deficiencies do not undermine the heker, their recognition that they are intended as a crossbeam to designate the entrance to a mavoi. So clearly, what we've got here is a preference for the psychological recognition of a reality above the physical uh, perfection of that same reality. Now, let's glance back at our Mishnah on 13b. It ends with a side comment um, that says, <clears throat> Anything which has three handbreadths of circumference will also have one handbreadth of um, diameter. Think back to your high school geometry class. Remember the rule C equals 2 pi R, that the circumference is twice the radius, or half the diameter, um, so it's the circumference is the diameter times pi. Ancient civilizations from Babylonia, India, and China, as well as Egypt and Greece, all had versions of pi, this circumference to diameter equaling something like a 1 to 3 ratio. The Greek mathematicians Archimedes and then Ptolemy in the 2nd century CE refined the number of pi to 3.1416. 
Artanaim were contemporaries of Ptolemy, and perhaps they too knew of his work, yet they were content using a slightly cruder ratio of three to one. Why? In the Gemara, at the bottom of page 14a, the transitional sage Rabbi Yochanan explains the, answers the Gemara's question, how do we know these things that the uh, circumference to the diameter is a three to one ratio? By citing the proportions listed for Solomon's temple basin, described in 1 Kings 7 as being 10 cubits across and 30 cubits in circumference. Perhaps they did know that pi was a bit larger than 3, since they discussed the possibility that the circumference of Solomon's basin was measured from the inside of the bowl, while the diameter included the lip of the basin. That lip was said to be very thin, like the petal of a lily, yet it was nevertheless something, and perhaps this fudge factor allowed that the rabbinic pi could in be a bit more than three after all. This discussion raises the question of the value of science in rabbinic thought. The sages were astute observers of their natural environment. Throughout the rabbinic corpus, you will find use of mathematics, astronomy, anatomy, and the botanical and medicinal qualities of plants. Yet the rabbis of the Talmudic era put such observations to the service of interpreting biblical and earlier rabbinic texts. There is little evidence that they were interested in scientific observation for its own sake, or even for the devotional purpose of understanding the mind of the Creator, as Maimonides would famously describe the goal of science a millennium later. On page 14b, our discussion of Solomon's bath, which was said by Rabbi Chia to equal the volume of 150 mikvaot, leads to a definition of the volume for a mikvah, or a ritual bath, which is used to this day. The mikvah is said to be sufficient to wash a whole person's body at once, and the rabbi said that this meant it must be at least one cubit by one cubit by three cubits high. This they estimated to total 40 se'ah, which we can call about 150 gallons um, of water. The sages evidence awareness of other variables in the measurement of volume. Liquids, for example, pack more efficiently than do dry goods, such as grain, and the sages thus build in a fudge factor of the gadish, or the rounded measure, of grain in a storage container when considering its volume. On Daf 14b, Yudalad Amabet, we encounter another Mishnah, this one focused on the specifications of the lechi, or the upright post at the entrance of the mavoi. The Tanakama, the first sage, anonymously says that this post can be of any width as long as it is at least ten handbreadths in height. But Rabbi Yossi dissents. He requires that the lechi, the upright post, also be at least handbreadth, three handbreadths in width. This leads to a marvelous discussion in the Gemara. Three generations of sages are summoned to refute Rabbi Yossi. The law is not like him, they say. Though this tradition is confirmed, it seems that Rabbi Yossi was not so easily dismissed. The Amora Rav seems to have changed his mind. After declaring that Ein Halacha Rabbi Yossi, the law does not follow Rabbi Yossi, he later repents, because, as he says, De Rabbi Yossi nimuko imo, Rabbi Yossi always has his proof with him. This is a famous aphorism which is quoted again later in the Talmud, the end of Tractate Sota. This change of heart is, well, heartwarming. 
and yet it causes chaos. What is the final ruling? My Hilchata, what is the final law? Must Alechi be thick, at least three handbreadths in width, like Rabbi Yossi taught? Or can it be thin as a hair, as the sages concluded? Rava asks Abaye what the final rule is. Hilchata Mai, what is the rule? Abaye gives a famous answer. Pok Chaze Ma Amadavar, go look at what the people are doing. Rashi says that the popular custom, what the people were doing, was already following the leniency of the sages, in that a lechi could be thin as a thread, and this indeed has become our law. The daf concludes with a similar reference to popular custom on another unsettled matter. What blessing do we say before drinking water? Once again, popular custom established the rabbinic debate. We should say the blessing shahakol nihiyabidvaro that God created all according to the word of God. This reference to popular custom is not by any means antinomian or against the law. It indicates a rabbinic trust that God's people preserve sacred traditions, sometimes even better than the elite sages are capable of doing. This bit of rabbinic humility nicely refrains the Agadah of the victory of the House of Hillel at the end of 13b. The rabbi's willingness to learn from others and their self-restraint in promoting their own view ensured that their teaching would endure for all the ages. And with this we conclude Daf Yudalad Eruvin, page 14. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Chorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.